0: Welcome to the Relentless Minds Podcast with Lori Jimenez, a platform where influential entrepreneurs get real and share their stories of challenges in life that they've had to face head on and conquer in order to be where they are today. Here, you'll get an inside look at the adversities that these individuals have experienced or are currently dealing with, in addition to their opinions on real life matters and philosophies in life. Most importantly, you'll learn what it takes to have a relentless mind so that you too can stay headstrong in your pursuit of a better future. In this podcast, you're going to get 100% authenticity from people that have figured out how to beat the noise that society creates and have a higher level of self-mastery. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Relentless Minds Podcast. Today I have with me Ellie Nash. Ellie Nash is a recovering porn addict who has spent 15 years of his life living in shame and guilt, and is now speaking up about his addiction and recovery to spread hope and healing, since, as he states, when we share our hardships, it moves us from shame into healing. Ellie, thank you so much for being here today. How are you?
1: Good. Thanks for having me. I realized that my greatest fear uh, when talking about porn addiction was realized that I'd be introduced first as a porn addict.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, you know, you're, you're super strong for being able to put it out there and just, you know, realize that it's for a good cause. I'm um, so much
1: more, I promise, but we'll let the interview.
0: Absolutely. And you'll share all of that with us today. So I actually just wanted to let you know, I wanted to start off by saying that I know that you decided at the beginning of this year that you were going to begin sharing your story. And six months later, just this past June, you got your first speech on the TEDx stage at Fort Wayne, in Indiana. So, congrats on that. Thank you so much. That's incredible. Um, My first question to start off today's episode is, I want to ask you, what inspired you to begin putting yourself out there and being vulnerable about your challenges with porn addiction as a male?
1: So, with porn addiction specifically, uh, this is new. This was all this year, like you mentioned. But I've done it um, one time previously, five or six years ago, I noticed how Um, I was abused sexually as a child for three years. And what I noticed five or six years ago was the way it was affecting me, A, and just how many people who were affected by it um, were in denial about it. And the way I knew that is because I was in denial about my own, the own impacts of abuse. You know, a lot of people, the first instruction when someone says, hey, I was abused as a child, some will say, just get over it. And that was the instruction i always gave to myself is just do my best to get over it and when i finally realized that it's not something you can choose to get over but you can get through it through hard work and get through the effects of it um, i realized that i have a responsibility to share that with others you know there's certain things that are happening in our life i remember someone telling me after i spoke about uh, being abused as a child and i was doing a lot of speeches on the subject and just recognizing the effects and the importance of protecting children and the importance of having enforcement policies in schools and camps and things like that, someone came over to me and said, kind of disparagingly, hey, I was abused as a child too, and it didn't affect me. I said, well, how do you know it didn't affect you? You don't know what that looks like. I said, I said but I will tell you this. I said, it did affect you.
0: Hmm.
1: So he said, "How do you? So, well, dude, that's like a bold statement to make. What do you mean? I said, I knew you were abused before you told me. I said, I knew it. I saw it on you. Because when you start um, doing work with survivors, you start noticing certain patterns, not 100% of the time, but every once in a while you meet with someone and you're like, man, that person was like, for sure abused. It doesn't mean I know it 100%, but it's like the, they're exhibiting certain te- telltale signs. When I started speaking about that, I realized the power of speaking, the power of sharing personal story, the fulfillment I got from it, the way it reconciled a lot of the shame and a lot of the what ifs, the the why was I abused and the victimhood and everything else. As soon as I started speaking out about it, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And that was five or six years ago. And I, for about two years, I was on the speaking uh, circuit talking about that. Eventually, I felt like I had done enough and I stopped and at the beginning of this year, I said, hey, I can do this again, just with a different subject. Let me talk about um, porn addiction. And that's how that happened.
0: Got you. So before you were talking about the abuse. Child sex abuse. Yeah. And then you stepped into the limelight earlier this year to talk about the porn addiction. Porn addiction. What exactly. that, you know, essentially became the, the abuse, what it became.
1: In a way, you can say that maybe yes, maybe no, right? There are people who are abused who don't have porn addiction, and there are people who are, um, who have porn addiction who weren't abused. Mm-hmm. So, That's- yeah, I mean, there's let me say, okay, sex abuse, sex addiction, right? You could make that connection, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. I'm not stuck in it, I don't, I don't care.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if we can actually go back to the beginning of your life story, this period of the three years, uh, when you were a victim of sexual abuse. How was that? Can you tell us about it
1: Uh, as in the story of, of what happened? Yes. Yeah, sure. So, uh, the first time it happened, I was about eight years old and, you know, these are facts I kind of piece together from, from memories, but I know was in the fourth grade. Right. So through eight years old and, um, The, uh, I had a a family friend who was about six years older than I was, and he somehow tricked me to come into his room and this pattern continued. Sometimes he tricked me to come into this room by showing me baseball cards or basketball cards, other times a computer game. And another time challenging me to see if I can climb up high enough because there was a gap at the top of his window was like, I grew up in Brooklyn, so there were bars in all the windows, but there's a missing bar towards the top and there was enough room for a boy's body to fit through. And one time challenging me, Hey, I bet you, you couldn't, you know, scale the window or scale the bars and get up in here. And to prove to him that I could, I climbed in and locked the door. And he ended up using my body to bring himself to orgasm. And this kind of just continued over a period of two or three years where most of the time we hung out, he was a good friend and took me to different places. And every once in a while I would end up there and, I just looked at it as a price to pay for his attention and for his friendship. And it was nice to have a friend that was six years older and just kept going back and didn't tell anyone about it.
0: That's what I was going to ask you in this time as a three-year, like this three-year period when you were eight years old, like what was going on in your head while experiencing this time and time again? And in a way you were feeling like it was like payment for attention and for...
1: I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's hard to know exactly. Um, I, I I knew enough that it was wrong. I knew not to tell anyone about it. Um, I hated it because, I mean, for a number of reasons, but that's not the case with every every survivor abuse. Some in the moment, they don't necessarily dislike it. In my case was the the way he abused me was, you know, he would lie down on top of me and it was very difficult for me to breathe and he would remove his pants, have me feel him and bring himself to orgasm and that being completely constricted and um, having a difficult time breathing, that was a standard way he abused me, uh, was not like, was physically extremely uncomfortable as well. Uh, but I guess you know, at the time, I just, I hope that each time wouldn't be that time. If I would look back at it, it was, okay, I hope this time we'll just play a computer game and I won't end up at any point in time in his room. And, or I won't end up, you know, he won't lock the door this time. He had mm-hmm. he had other siblings in the same room that slept in the same room. So sometimes there'd be someone else in there and nothing would happen.
0: Gotcha. I see. So you weren't you weren't expecting that outcome every single time and you were hoping for a different outcome and and then it was just never, you never knew, but you never disconnected from that at that time. Did you ever tell anyone? I never
1: told anyone. No, the, the risk, list. for example, if if you gave me, and overall at the time and said, okay, you cannot be abused by him, but then you won't have him as a friend. I don't know that I would have said good deal. Just, it's the price to pay. Yeah, it sucks. But, you know, think of it in terms of um, someone being married to someone who's abusive and no, they don't like those periods of time, but they're making the deal every single day that overall for my family, for my kids, for our relationship, for financial concerns, whatever it is, that this just makes more sense. I sure as hell hope that when I open the door today, um, my spouse is not in a drunken mess and I'm not going to get my ass kicked. But you're not liking that necessarily The person is not liking that necessarily. It's very similar but mm-hmm. I guess in a child's words.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned this before earlier in this po- in the episode that you wouldn't necessarily, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you wouldn't necessarily have attributed that to causing you to be addicted to porn. Is that right? Or do you feel it did have a heavy influence?
1: I think there's certainly a possibility. I don't, um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that because I don't, I find it unhelpful, like an unhelpful thought process. Mm -hmm. Would I have this addiction if not for that, you know, practically speaking, I don't even go back to the trauma like that my childhood was going amazing and then I was abused by this guy and he derailed me. Obviously not. That's that's not what happened because a child whose childhood is going amazing doesn't need to make that deal that it's worth it. So, you know, there were probably enough things I grew up one of nine kids in a very lower in, you know, lower middle class home. There was a lot of stress, a lot of um disagreement a lot of frustrations there was there was enough there for me to want to escape into porn besides for being abused
0: okay so i guess my question would be that the experience that you went through as in in sexual abuse as being abused sexually how did you feel if you felt that how that it affected you and did it affect you in any way did you feel that like in your yeah, early sexually t-
1: yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you ask someone if if you injected them with a belief that they were disgusting, right, and they just walked around with that every single day. That's That essentially happened. I don't know that I had this feeling like I was just a disgusting piece of shit before I was abused, and after that I did. And there was a secret that sat inside me was no one can find out. I have, I have this distinct memory. I was in summer camp probably around – 14 years old and uh, they brought a hypnotist to, um, you know, kind of as, as a night activity, right? So a hypnotist came out, was hypnotizing a bunch of campers. And one of my friends were pushing me like, why don't you go up to get hypnotized? And I sat on, you know, he was hypnotizing, like let's say 15 or 20 people at the same time. And let's say three or four would fall into the hypnosis and everyone else would go back on the stage. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, those shows. And I remember sitting there on the chair saying, like, there's, there's no way I'm letting myself fall into this because people can find out that I was abused. So that's wow. that feeling of disgust. Like well, if they knew, they would think I'm some sort of disgusting person. It was a male and I felt his erection and all of those things. Mm-hmm. There's the, the fact that he wrestled me and beat me. I mean, there was so many man stuff that were being challenged by yes. what had happened to me. And I was left with this belief that I was weak and I was disgusting. And you say, okay, how does that affect someone? Yeah, when you go through 15 years, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about sharing my story today is because for so many years I was trapped with the secret and the feeling that I couldn't share my story.
0: And that kind of ties into also the secret of the porn addiction then. Very
1: closely related.
0: Right. And so I hate secrets. Yeah. And and I'm just feeling like you're living in shame because you can't share it. Like you have stated yourself that when you share your hardships or your struggle, like anything, these challenges, it moves you from shame into healing. And I completely believe that because then you find people that connect to that story and you find people that are sympathetic and that care. And then it it normalizes that for you in a bit. It kind of makes it seem like, hey, this is okay that it happened. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person. Right. No, and it doesn't. There's kind of
1: a phase one and phase two. So phase one, what I found is that when you share your story and someone else connects to that, then you're like, okay, that was like, I'm fine. I'm an okay person. And then when you continue sharing your story and someone walks over to you, like after one of the talks I gave on um, sex abuse, a child sex abuse, and us really, really willing to own that this affected us, someone from the crowd came over to me after the speech and said. Uh, you know, I've been struggling with different kinds of addictions, and so my family wants me to go to rehab. Um, I've been resisting it. And after your talk, and recognize that, hey, I was abused as a child as well, like this drug stuff may not be so innocent, and maybe I should check myself into rehab, and he did. I mean, those are things that that's kind of the phase two, right? Where you're like, wow, there was a purpose in this. It's not just random that some guy abused me. Like there was, I I was charged with a mission to be able to help other people and to do something about this. And that, that kind of like right[s] the wrong to some degree of what happened.
0: Absolutely. I completely understand that being able to use that as in a positive manner, because if you didn't go through that experience, you wouldn't have been able to change these lives. And maybe this happened, this could have happened to someone. It happens to people that don't use this for that positive purpose. Like you are doing it now. Right. And so they're just using, they just go through a life of maybe more like self-destruction and like unfulfillment. Mm-hmm. And you, didn't. you know, I'm,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm not putting it on anyone necessarily. And when I said earlier that it writes the wrong, it doesn't write the wrong for the person who did it. What I meant is that it writes the wrong in our own mind. For you. As an example of that, um, years later, I confronted the person who abused me so, through an interesting sequence of events I was able to sit down and talk to him for about a th- roughly three-hour conversation. Leading up to the meeting with him, and I had a third person in the room, a therapist, a professional who deals with trauma and things like that, just in case it went a little bit wrong. And uh, leading up to that, I prepared a list of 20 or 30 questions, as well as a written statement. So I started off with a four or five-page written statement, which I uh, read to him, and then I asked him the question, you want to guess what my first question was to him?
0: Why did you do it?
1: Yeah, why me? That was exactly why me. How'd you know that?
0: Because I just feel like that would be the most logical question to ask. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this question, I've heard it from so many survivors. Like there's this pain sitting, like this agonizing pain, and like verbalize the pain. What is the pain? And it's like, why me? And the way mine was articulated, I said to him, I said, why of all the other little boys on the block, why did you choose me? That's Mm -hmm. what I said. And that question epitomizes what it means to be a victim. I don't, you know, why me? Why did I lose the deal? Why did this happen to me? Why did I end up dating this guy? Why did I have to be standing in the street when the car hit me? Whatever, right? Why, why, why? And now I don't have that question anymore. And that question left not when I resolved some of the addiction and not when I resolved some of the trauma, it came when I found a purpose in it. When I was able to help another person, I said, why me? Why me? This is why me, because I'm using my story to help tons of people. Write the story again, do the same damn thing and I'll do this.
0: Yes. And you said that also, you went from trying to get rid of your addiction to trying to understand now why you had that when you had the porn addiction. You were and now I got
1: it. The question's been answered. Your question's why been me? answered. Why me so I can be on this podcast, talking to you, and hopefully someone's listening to it, who's trapped in some of these same things that I was once trapped in, and I'm the catalyst to free them, the same way someone else was a catalyst to free me,
0: who experienced something similar. And so can we talk about that, about this person who was a catalyst for you to change, and what was it that he provided that you needed?
1: Yeah, there were a number of different catalysts, it's not always one. (laughs) Um, the, The first time I dealt with anything related to my abuse, was I'd started a business when I was 19 years old. Um, It started growing relatively quickly, and um, I've had an inability pretty much forever to tell people no, right? In very much the same way that I couldn't tell this person no who, who abused me, and that kind of built on top of that. And I guess this template of being in relationships and just saying, hey, that's the price to pay for this person to be my friend, or You know, something else.
0: Or my client, yeah.
1: Anything. Yeah, that's just a dangerous um, framework to look at things through. Mm -hmm. So I was ending up uh, loaning people money or investing in things that I shouldn't be or giving to charity when I didn't want to. There was a lot of charity I did want to and a lot of people I did want to loan money to, but a loan maybe is not a good example. It's never a good idea to loan, almost never a good idea to loan money that I give it or don't loan it. But that's a different (laughs) conversation for a different time. But I was saying yes a lot more than I wanted to. And I was speaking to a friend of mine who was abused uh, both physically and sexually, mostly physically. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, he knew what was going on with me. Like he picked up on it, but Mm -hmm. he didn't tell me that he knew. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So he just referred me to a therapist who was helping him process the same thing. When I ended up going to the therapist, uh, within 15 minutes of me describing why I was there, he asked me, were you sexually abused? And I said, yes. yes. So he asked before, did I tell anyone or anyone? No, I didn't tell anyone, but I did tell the very first person who asked. And the very first person who asked, I was 23 years old, sitting in this therapist's office, complaining that I had an inability to assert myself and an inability to say no, I was loaning a lot of money, I didn't want to. Gotcha. And he put the two and two together.
0: It had nothing to do with sex. It had nothing to do with pornography. Oh,
1: zero, no, zero, zero. The pornography and everything else didn't come until five years later, mm-hmm. six years later. Because at that point in time, I was engaging in the behaviors regularly, but I didn't really want to stop. I kind of wanted to stop. I was ashamed of it, but overall, I was like, you know, it was working for me. You didn't
0: see it as a problem. And you had mentioned before that it was like a, se- a sense of like peace for you, like it made during you know, it. Yeah, better absolutely. Better inside.
1: Yeah. Yeah, during it absolutely. There's, you know, everyone likes the feeling of being drunk. It's the hangover the next day, That's right? Or finding out what you said or the decisions you made. But the feeling is great. It's so the same t- with porn. I mean, porn's amazing. Hmm. It just sucks afterwards.
0: Yeah, and so you told your your therapist that Five you were, years later. No, but you told. Uh huh. Yeah. But he was he's the one that discovered that you had been abused, and you told him that you had been abused. Yes.
1: Yeah, and one of my first. um, Meetings with him, first sessions with him, he encouraged me to confront my abuser. And that was like a four or five year journey to confront my abuser, Uh, even longer. And when I finally did confront him, it was several months after I started working on the porn addiction. It's right around the same time that both happened, that I realized that the porn was a significant problem and I had to let go of this. And uh, I've I finally met the person who abused me and had that conversation all around the same time.
0: And so the experience that helped you to change your life, or at least start going towards the path of healing was being able to connect because you were able to meet someone who, and that shared their story. And even, you even went to a group of other people who were trying to work on their, like a rehab, you know, rehab, and do work on their porn addiction. And so being able, right, to connect with these people and learn from them and feel less shame.
1: That's the antidote to shame, right? So what what you're talking about is specifically on the porn addiction side. So I joined a support group for that um, after I told my therapist. So it's interesting because I've been working with this therapist on and off for about five years. And we worked through a lot of different trauma-related stuff and relationship things and family of origin stuff and on and on and on. And he had never directed me really to anyone else. The only person he ever directed me to was another psychologist to do a series of tests, like Rorschach tests and everything else. As soon as I told him porn addiction, he right away, and she's like, hold on, I want you to talk to this person. And it was another one of his clients who was dealing with the same thing who had joined a, a support group, specifically a 12-step support group. And uh, I, I got involved in that world. And um, there's something very powerful, especially as it relates to diseases that are Um, fueled by shame like addiction is to have someone else who's gone through the same thing and for us to connect over that, that reduces a ton of shame. I mean, it's amazing to think that some of my best friends, like some of my best connections that I've developed are the things that I was so afraid of, right? Going back to that um, hypnotist who was there and I'm sitting on the chair and I'm like, I don't want any of my friends to know about the fact that I was abused, right? I don't want anyone to know certainly anything about the the porn or anything else. But these are the things that my best friends now, we share that in common. By best friends, I mean the people who I trust the most, like we've connected over sharing that struggle, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so powerful to do it. It really opens up connection to someone else. (laughs) That's
0: incredible. Absolutely. Because something that you said and this was and you were talking about the science of shame i forgot the person that you said that was talking about this this um this um expert but you said that the shame shame is not feeling worthy of connection
1: yeah brene brown the very brene famous brown. shame researcher yeah brene brown i mean this is her life right studying shame and she defines shame as not as the, the fear of not being worthy of connection and i love that definition
0: so I wonder how that could have affected you possibly with just other relationships growing up, right? So when it comes to maybe a love life or when it comes to family, friends, people who didn't know about what you were dealing with in that time, how do you feel that living in shame for those years, did it affect those relationships?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a feeling of, um, like, in my case, I always felt like I was hiding something from the people around me. And that feeling is just, you know, or not wanting to. What's interesting is with addiction, I never liked getting drunk. And, you know, I had the porn and, you know, that whole world of addiction. But in terms of getting drunk, I was always afraid what I would say if I got drunk. I was afraid what someone would find out about me. So there was this sense that I always had to keep on to these secrets, really like hold on to it really, really tightly. Yeah, that messes with a ton of relationships.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because if you feel like you're being inauthentic with them, it's kind of like you have your guard up all the time because you can't like it's you if you feel it's adds to the shame, really, like you're feeling ashamed for yeah. the shame that you're feeling that you can't be honest with them.
1: Yeah, it's the it's the elephant in the room always. Right. And it just becomes yeah, it becomes a really, really heavy weight. the The weight of secrets are just incredible. It's the first thing I notice um, when new people join the support group mm-hmm. is to finally find a place where they can share these secrets that they've been holding on to for so long and to unburden themselves yes. of it. There's a physical difference between someone who's carrying. I, I know you notice it right away. That as, as they start sharing some of those things, their shoulders seem to lighten up, their head yeah. stands a little taller. There's just a You know, and I felt that. I felt that for so many years of having to hold on to the secret around everyone, the people closest to you. And the closer someone gets to you, the more you're worried about them finding that out.
0: And so when you were finally able to unload all of these burdens and come forth and be honest, first with the abuse and then with the porn porn addiction, addiction, how did you feel personally? And how did your close friends and family react
1: the close friends and family react very differently so you know with um each one is different but let's say in the short term um it doesn't always work quite as well as you want it to like the the immediate aftermath is not quite as glorious as it is afterwards so even something like the ted talk um i had done the ted talk it was actually in april and they didn't publish it till two months later. My family saw gotcha. it. Uh, they saw a picture of me, that a friend of mine was in the crowd. He took a picture of me and it had escaping porn addiction in the background and um, me standing on the TED stage, but they hadn't heard the speech. They didn't know what I said. And a lot of my family was uncomfortable with it. Said, well, what, <laughs> what the hell is this? I yeah, out there, and check with me or whatever. Oh my God. Yeah, what did you say? Did you make yeah. us look good? Did you make us look bad? Like all of those questions start start coming up, and I, I didn't say much. So wait for the talk to come out. There's nothing, um, you know. I there's no reason to describe to describe it once it comes out. You'll hear it. and You give me your thoughts. When it did come out, forget my family, but just myself. When it did come out, and uh, no one let me know. No one from TED sent me an email. saying, "Hey, your talk is live." Uh, a friend of mine walked into my office one day and he says, "Hey, what happened to your TED talk?" And I was like, "I have no idea." So strange. I've never, I haven't seen it published. So I went on Google. I went, on, I went on YouTube and I typed in my name, and the the talk pops up. I was like, "Whoa, shit!" And it was, it was published like a couple of days before. And No one let me know. And as soon as it did, he was like, wow, congratulations. That's awesome. I felt this pit in my stomach that didn't leave me for two, three days. Mm. I was like, holy shit. I'm one day going to be in a podcast and someone's going to introduce me first as a porn addict. I think the first thought that went through my head is I have a son, which is a little over a year. And it's okay. This kid's going to be a teenager one day, which is a ruthless time. Mm. And this is, I mean, you type in my name today. I've done all sorts of things, but you type in my name today. The very first thing that comes up YouTube is a powerful website and Ted is a powerful channel. The very first thing that comes up is my Ted talk. Mm-hmm. I was like, he's going to be in school as a teenager and people are, gonna make, people are going to be making fun of him that his dad's a porn addict. And I can't change that and I can't take it down. It's not my YouTube channel, it's Ted's. And that was kind of the first thought. And then over the next couple of days, you know, some of that subsided and I started getting messages from people. And you, when it, once you start getting messages, I've gotten so many amazing messages from people who've watched my TED Talks. Thank you so much. That's exactly what I was feeling. Um, a few weeks ago, someone messaged me about it, saying, um, I'm married for 10 years. I feel like I have an amazing relationship with my wife, but I just cannot tell her that I, I watch porn. And it messes with our relationship, it messes with our sex life, it messes with all of it, but I can't bring myself to tell her. And I responded back. I said, I can't tell you when to do it. But if you care about the relationship, you're going to have to do it at some point. I don't know if it's right now. I don't know if it should be done just with you. Maybe there you know, should lay a little foundation. Maybe it should be a third person in the room. I have no idea. But if you care about that relationship long term, this secret's weighing on you. It's going to affect and you got you to say something. And three days later, I get a message from him. That was, it was a short wow. conversation. Three days later, I got a message from him saying, I told my wife, the conversation went amazing. We're going to work on this together. And she's very supportive of it. And those things are like, all right, so my son will deal with this couple of kids who make fun of him when he's 14. What am I going to do?
0: Hey, and you know what? (laughs) Society is changing every year. So by that time, it might be completely normalized. And like, just, I mean, and you're starting that, right? And that's what people need. Like people with these addictions, like you said, people that have addictions to gambling or addictions to drugs right like that's like oh okay well i mean yeah we hear it all the time
1: right that's true yeah
0: right and so it's like this is just normalizing you've got to bring attention to these matters to normalize it because then because you can't help the addictions that people fall into people can't help that many times right and so being able to have that be something that's just more common gives them the freedom and the liberty too to speak. Yeah, about. I guess, right.
1: I guess you bring up a good point is that this is exactly what can change that conversation.
0: Exactly. We got
1: 13 years to do what my son's one, 12 years till he's a teenager. So yeah.
0: we
1: got, we got, <laughs> now we got to go.
0: <laughs> That's a lot of time. There you go. You're already starting. Yeah. And it's incredible. I mean, you've you've made you've made waves of changes already in, into people's in people's lives. Look at that. You know,
1: that something pretty- something that happened uh, recently, I have a, a storytelling company called Mic Drop. And we recently started working with Lamar Odom the former NBA basketball player and husband of Khloe Kardashian, ex-husband of Khloe Kardashian. Uh, We've been working with him to share his own story. He has an amazing story. And the first time we met, we were in New York City. We are at dinner. Um, I was with Lamar and his daughter and his ex-wife, the mother of his daughter, not not Khloe. And um, as I, halfway through, we were talking about different things and we had showed him the TED Talk even before we met, the TED Talk I did on Porn Addiction. And when I got up to go to the bathroom, Lamar followed me. And he's like, so tell me about this thing with porn addiction. We started like with porn. Is it really possible to stop? And we s- have a conversation about it. The next few times we met, we spoke a lot about porn addiction. And uh, recently, Lamar uh, was in an airport in Los Angeles. And TMZ came over to him and said, um, he was with his girlfriend who's a trainer. Her name is Sabrina Parr. And says, hey, Lamar, what's going on? You know, are you? He's like, I'm looking to get more healthy, things like that. She said, his girlfriend says, Yeah, I've been working out. We've been running a mile every day. And the TMZ reporter says, Anything else going on? He says, Yeah, I decided to cut out candy and porn. That's what he says. Wow. And it got all over. The New York Post wrote an article. TMZ put the video out there. And, you know, Lamar has since done a number of things related to this. He did a podcast recently talking about him overcoming porn addiction. And he's looking at it and saying, I played a part in it, right? That the, He has a massive, massive following. A lot of people listen to him. And our conversations about pornography ended up getting leaked into a much larger way. So besides for hopefully being part of his own journey, right? There's never one guy, but being part of his own journey to free himself from porn addiction, to also be a message to so many others. If you go on his Instagram page today, you'll see a number of his last posts. He's on Dancing with the Stars. You'll see a few posts about Dancing with the Stars and a number of his last posts about porn addiction and him freeing himself from that.
0: That's incredible because he first started just with that one statement, and then TMZ made it public. It went everywhere. There is no hiding from it. Where am I going to do now? Am I going to deny that I said that? Right. Or Am I going to go with it and then just continue to to share that message about what I'm doing? And so I that's mean, it's, it's so it's part saying. of
1: the process of normalizing it, right? A few that more, is. right? There are plenty of people who are struggling with porn addiction. which If they let the world know, would be part of that process of of uh, of normalizing it.
0: And I wanted to talk about this, um, about the men out there that are listening and dealing with the same problem, right? And maybe not realizing that they have a problem because they feel like that's the man thing to do, right? The guy thing to do is to, to like, you know, just socially, like, that's kind of the thing or believed of men just watching porn and just always watching porn and that being their thing it's interesting though in this interview and talking with you that men feel shame men can feel shame men can try to stop and then realize that hey this is a bigger problem i can't stop and so i wanted to hear from you in regarding to like your your experiences and kind of the movement here that you're trying to make like what's your what's your message what would be your message to those people out there those guys that know maybe are are conflicted because they're saying you know i should be watching porn i'm a guy i should be normal but maybe they feel ashamed and they want to stop like what are your, what's your yeah
1: so I, I wouldn't say that i have an anti-porn message per se mm-hmm. there are those and i've met some of those and i, I can't say i disagree with them like in, as part of this process i've met with a, uh, some of the team at fight the new drug which is an organization yes. which combats um, not to say combat pornography, but they want to bring awareness to the fact that porn is dangerous and addictive. And their message is certainly that porn is unhealthy and dangerous and feeds into a very negative um, worldview and hmm. sex trafficking. And they have the data and statistics to back it up. Mm. That's, that's their message. And I'm not going to, I'm not disagreeing with it. I'm saying my message is for the person who wants to free themselves from porn.
0: Exactly.
1: And not everyone who drinks alcohol is an alcoholic and is trapped by the shame of it, but there are some people who are. Exactly. And It's for those people that I have a message, for them and for others who are struggling, that there is no shame in asking for help. That's the main thing. And as a, as a matter of fact, if we start the journey of speaking about our struggles, you, you never know where it's going to end up. Absolutely. You never know where this is where this is gonna go. I had no idea that I'd ever be standing side by side with Lamar Odom, both of us wearing shirts that says porn kills love. I didn't, I didn't know that that day would come, but those things happen and a lot of people saw that. And that's cool to be a part of it, just to, to mm-hmm. free people from that from that prison. That was yeah. my prison. And someone else has a different prison. Exactly. Right.
0: But it's the same message. It's, there's no shame in sharing that and trying to ask for help, whatever the challenges that they're experiencing. There's, there's no shame
1: into. in being human. Right?
0: Being human <laughs> with imperfections. Exactly. So this Porn Kills Love, this is on behalf of Lamar's story that you guys are trying or working with him to speak about on your channel.
1: Well, what happened, Porn Kills Love is actually a t-shirt developed by Fight the New Drug. But um, gotcha. by sharing my story, I've connected with a lot of different people. Absolutely. I've connected with the team at Fight the New Drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a podcast with them. They have a podcast they started, Consider Before Consuming, and I met some of the team. I really focused on the effects of pornography. They saw my TED talk and reached out. And separately from that, I ran into Lamar Odom, and we just had conversations. We were doing business together, and I ran into some con- and we had some conversations about pornography. So I ended up introducing the two of them together, and you know, fight the new drug, obviously loved what he was doing. And the fact that he can bring awareness, they're mostly focused on teenagers, right, 15 to 24, I think is their sweet spot. And what they really want to do is very similar to what happened to smoking, where I don't know when it was, but there was a period of time before I was born and before you were born, where people smoked without any consideration for the ramifications. Just smoke, it's normal. And no one said, hey, it can cause lung cancer, it can destroy your teeth, it can have massive health ramifications and secondhand smoke is very dangerous. There was just no consideration to it because the science hadn't come out of it yet. And fight the new drug once through the same thing. We're not looking to make, they're not looking to make cigarettes illegal. They're not looking to make pornography illegal. They simply want the consumer and especially the consumer at that age, 15, 16, 17, 18, which is when a lot of people get sucked into it, yes. to know the facts. You can smoke if you want to, just understand the chances that you get um, cancer are much higher. You can watch porn if you want to, but the chances that you get a porn-induced erectile dysfunction are much higher. And that's really freaking embarrassing if, you know, you can't get turned on by a real woman, but porn does that one does that. It didn't do it to me, but it, it did it to so I can't tell you how many people have come to me afterwards and saying like, I, just, I only get aroused by pornography. I cannot get aroused by the real thing.
0: It can desensitize. That's what I've heard. Um, that's incredible.
1: There's a, term, there's a term for it. I forget the exact scientific term, but there was a, a, a scientist which I think was butterflies at a certain season are attracted to a different kind of butterfly, so huh. he made um, a paper butterfly or some fake butterfly, which was much larger, much more colorful, much brighter, just, you know, and the butterflies which were mating were trying to go after the paper butterfly, the fake, you know, and that's what they liked. And then afterwards, when that was removed, they weren't as interested in the other. So they weren't interested in the normal butterflies. That's what porn does. Porn creates this image of sex. that doesn't exist. It's not a real one. You've taken someone fake, you've had them do things which are fake. It's not real intimacy. There's you know, none of the stuff is real. And then you see the real person and it doesn't match up to the videos. And then that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't turn you on.
0: So it's like a fantasy world and you just want to stay in the fantasy world. Yeah,
1: I got, I got to find a term for it, but there's a scientific, there a scientific paper written on this, this concept mm-hmm. of um, like kind of the, uh, the fake, like how fake becomes more attractive.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you going to look it up?
1: <laughs> I
0: could have to, yeah. <laughs> incredible yes i mean you go ahead if you want that's yeah that, that that works but i wanted to just tell you that you coming out here today and being super vulnerable with us and sharing your story and just being completely real and open um i truly appreciate that i know that everybody that is listening to this that can relate in any way or has family or friends that have also experienced that can also appreciate this deeply so i want to thank you um, and you're doing incredible work.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate right. that. And thanks for making this space available on the podcast to have these kind of conversations. It's not,
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I,
1: I looked it up. I was able to find it. I can, I can <laughs> share it. <laughs> oh, okay. Fact, yeah. it's, it's called a super normal stimulus. Okay. And it was see. a, um, Nico Tinbergen developed this thing. I, here's what he says. Tinbergen studied male stickleback fish who would naturally attack a ryle mavel a rival male that entered their territory during mating season. So the fish, if it saw another male, it would attack them to keep them away from the the women. Uh He then created an oval object with a very red belly, more intensely red than the natural fish. The fish fiercely attacked the mock-up and subsequently lost interest in attacking its real male rival. Wow.
0: Interesting.
1: So I saw it with butterflies, which may have been something someone else did, but when I Googled it, I found it here. Supernormal stimulus. Incredible. And that's what porn, in a a lot of ways, that's what porn does to us. And Mm -hmm. it's happened to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. Um, Absolutely. I I truly appreciate it. Um, I also wanted to just mention that, you know, there are different forms for people to get in contact with you or to look at what you're doing and services that you provide. Um, You mentioned, you know, you've got the the company of Mic Drop and Mm -hmm. you're doing, there's a YouTube channel that people can look into, which is Mic Drop with Rosh Lowe. And also, they can find uh, on your website the services you guys provide. Basically, it's the, the channel is about sharing stories about people. People coming in and they're sharing their own struggles and they're being real and vulnerable and putting their stories out there. And then your um, official website, of micdrop dot Drop. one, um, is about service service based, right? About sharing or helping people to yeah.
1: What we do is we provide both the training and a platform for people to share their stories. So a lot of people, a lot of people come with either a fear of public speaking, a fear of the attention that it comes with, or mm-hmm. simply saying, I don't have a story, or there's so much, how would I turn that into a speech? Mm-hmm. We have a training program that allows people to take the message they want to deliver, connect it to their story, and relay it in 15 or 20 minutes.
0: Perfect. And so they can find those services, and they can connect with you guys on your, on your website, one. And then your Instagram handle. Also, I'll put all of these in the show notes. (laughs) Uh, So those are three things, your website, your YouTube channel, and your Instagram handle. So thank you so much again. Um, Truly, truly, truly appreciate you being on here today and sharing your story with us.
1: Thank you so much. Have an awesome day.
0: You too. And to everybody else, thank you for listening. Until next time. That concludes this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel inspired and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Relentless Minds podcast via the link in the show notes or visit laurihimenez.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.